Welcome to Faith and Freedom Fighters. I'm Robert Muse, co-founder and senior counsel of the American Freedom Law Center. And I'm joined by my fellow freedom fighter, co-founder and senior counsel, David Yerushami. You know, during our last show on April 22nd, we discussed, among other things, how Facebook censored us. It took down our episode seven for discussing the evidence supporting the conclusion that the China flu, or COVID-19, was more likely than not a virus released from the lab in Wuhan, and the evidence showing that this virus may well have been a part of China's biowarfare. We were censored for this discussion. Meanwhile, Facebook posts a link on our Facebook page with its propaganda on COVID-19. The propaganda that no doubt the Biden administration wants expressed as his administration and social media are working jointly on this. Again, stay tuned, neither Twitter nor Facebook have heard the last from us. Now make no mistake, social media such as Facebook and Twitter and the national media are simply echo chambers for the Democratic Party and left-wing progressives, which is essentially the same thing. Now following this censorship, we posted an article published on the National Institutes of Health website, NIH, a government website. We discussed this article on our last podcast. This article claims that existing scientific evidence challenges the safety and efficacy of wearing face masks as preventive intervention for COVID-19. It's not the first such article to do so. Now, Facebook didn't censor this article, but they posted a link from their so-called independent fact checker, which criticized this article. Much of the fast checkers, fact checkers criticism was uh, ad hominem attacks. So Facebook's posts on our page, a, a independent fact checker article, and this, this post that they put on our, on our Facebook page says, quote, missing context. Independent fact checker says this information could mislead people, CY, end quote. And then you click on that link and it takes you to their, their version and their criticism of the article that we posted. Now, fact checkers, really? You know, does Facebook fact check all of the lies posted on social media by the left? There's so many, it's, it's hard to know where, where to begin. Maybe that's the reason why. So let's take a very recent and exceedingly important example that is quite easy to show the way that Facebook discriminates against certain viewpoints. You know, this past summer, we saw all of the rioting, the looting, and the mayhem following the death of George Floyd, right? Black Lives Matter was everywhere. And trust me, they cashed in in a big way on, the, on this uh, propaganda that they were promoting, right? We saw all of these woke politicians marching in violation of their very COVID restrictions that they imposed on the rest of us, right? We had Governor Whitmer here in, uh, in Michigan, Governor Wolf from Pennsylvania, and Mayor de Blasio in New York City, to name a few. You know, we also saw executives of the NBA, the NFL, and Major League Baseball and their pampered millionaire players joining the wokeness, right? Wearing shirts and at times even painting the courts and playing fields with social justice messages. So all summer long, we were told that George Floyd's death was the result of systemic racism, right? Remember that? Systemic racism. We were told that the officers involved in the death of George Floyd, George Floyd were racist, that the Minneapolis police force was systemically racist, even though the chief of police and the Minnesota attorney general, a black man, right? The, the two people responsible and ultimately responsible for the actions of the Minneapolis police officers um, are in fact uh, African-American men. So as a result of this alleged systemic racism, we have had calls from left-wing politicians to defund police departments. Do you remember all this, right? This is all this, all this facts that this was systemic racism, that the death of George Floyd was the result of racism. We saw the rioting, the looting and everything else all summer long. Well, 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 here's an article that was published in Washington Times quoting Keith Ellison, who is the attorney general of, of Minnesota. Again, the top the, law the African American, the, Af the African American Attorney General. Right, the African American Attorney General from Minnesota, the top law enforcement officer. He says, "Quote: We don't have any evidence, any evidence that Derek Chauvin, C H A U V I N, Derek Chauvin is the officer that was just recently convicted. We don't have any evidence that Derek Chauvin factored in George Floyd's race as he did what he did." In other words, Keith Ellison admits we don't have any evidence that racism played a factor in the death 
of George Floyd. Imagine that. So, do you think Facebook has gone out there and is now fact-checking Black Lives Matter's Facebook page and all these woke politicians' Facebook pages and all these left-wing progressive Facebook pages who keep making these very, very false claims that the death of George Floyd was the result of racism or systemic racism? I wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't wager that Facebook has uh, done any of that. David, your comments. Welcome. Rob, thank you. You know, and it should be obvious that we are living in strained and even tragic times. Daily, even hourly, we hear and read about law enforcement officers being murdered and wounded in the line of duty in what has become open season on men and women in blue. We are also tragically hearing and reading about people of color being killed or wounded by police officers. The problem is, of course, that as a society, we have literally stopped understanding the connection between the two. That is to say, the fact that police officers are in the communities where the crimes are taking place, and not often, but on a sufficient number of occasions in this day and age, that when they're called upon to protect and serve, and they wound or kill people of color, people in those communities, or even white people in those communities, the police officers are being literally hung out to dry. But there's a connection between the events that people call systemic racism and the fact that the police are in those communities for a reason. The other problem, of course, is that we've simply ceased examining the facts of each case. A police officer shoots someone and wounds them or kills them and all just automatically, it is a matter of systemic racism and bias. According to the narrative, the narrative of the politicians from the local level to the state level to the federal level and the Biden administration, to members of Congress, to the media and to all the pundits. A police officer murdered or wounded in the line of dirty duty appears to elicit a societal yawn while the death of a black teenager shot by a police officer when the teenager is clearly brandishing a knife and attacking another black teenager and that situation requires a split decision is simply lumped together with the George Floyd death you know if you if you actually look at the video the young lady um Makia Bryant uh, a teenager, not a small girl, a fairly large girl, with a knife. The police officer pulls up, and you can see this clearly in the in the video. And this attacker, Miss Bryant, is holding a knife. She throws one girl to the ground as if she's going to attack her with a knife, but immediately pivots and takes another girl and throws her up against the car and literally has the knife cocked in her hand to stab her with a kind of undercut. The police officer did a tremendous job. First of all, he had to make a split, just a, a, a split decision at the moment what to do. He saw a threat to life because a knife to the gut can be deadly as everyone should know, but certainly the police officer knows. And then he takes aim and shoots and has a clean shot. And the young lady who was being attacked was able to escape. Now, what do we hear in the media? We hear pundits, we hear uh, politicians, we hear the left screaming about this, LeBron James. And when the video came out, you heard people say, well, he should have shot her in the leg and wounded her. Well, Rob, you were a, <laughs> uh, a, a, and, you know, a combat Marine officer in your day, and you're clearly a marksman and, and very familiar with weapons. Everyone who's ever been schooled in the use of weapons knows that one, a shot in the leg uh, is more than likely going to result in a miss than a shot to the torso, which is a bigger target. And that's where police officers are trained to shoot. If you're going to use your gun, 
because there is a risk, a mortal risk. You were to shoot in the center mass, not to some extremity where you are more likely to miss because it's a smaller target. Secondly, a shot to the leg can hit a fem femoral artery and a person can bleed out very quickly. So there's no less of a risk in that regard. But he was able to take an accurate shot in a situation that required a split de decision, just a split second decision. To me, um, this is the case where everyone should have waited, learned all of the facts, and then come down with their judgment. But that's not what happened. And we see this occurring day in and day out. And all you have to do is stick in your Google, police officer shot, police officer wounded in the line of duty, and look at the number of cases. And this is a direct result of the fake news of systemic racism, Rob, that you just talked about. It's open season. And young people and not so young people are literally taking aim at police officers in these neighborhoods. And of course, <laughs> that very clearly explains the absolute exodus from all the urban police departments, city of New York, Baltimore, Chicago, every single city is hemorrhaging police officers and unable to recruit enough officers to take their place. So this whole defund the police movement, it's going to have its wish because you won't have to defund the police. There simply won't be a police force available. You know, who would want to be a police officer these days? My goodness. I mean, what a what a what a thankless job for so uh, you know for so many of them. You know the example that you you just gave. I mean that was clearly a situation where deadly force was authorized, and you're trying you have to make a split second decision. And the way you're trained is you you aim on you aim center mass. You even if you take a shot in the leg, the likelihood of that stopping that the you know the girl from stabbing the individual it's not going to happen. You need to do you need. I mean, it's the, the whole point is use of deadly force because you're doing so for the defense of the life of another. And that clearly was a situation where deadly force would be authorized. But like you said, you know, they go after these police officers. You want to think about the funding, the police, who's that going to hurt, right? It's going to hurt the poor inner city communities who, who would, who's, you know, communities have been overtaken by drug dealers and crime. And I mean, it's just, it's so prevalent in those communities. These, the law abiding, you know, individuals in those communities, they don't want the police to go away. I mean, the, the idea is it's just nonsense. I still, it still befuddles me how the black community commits suicide, as it were, by continuing to elect these left-wing progressive Democrats, the ones who've been overseeing the, the erosion of the inner city for decades, and now they want to take away police that's protecting these people. The only people that are going to get, get harmed the most are going to be poor black people in these inner cities. I mean, it's just, it's unbelievable that they would even, that this would be something that they would, that the, uh, the community would support. It's right. just, you know, it's mind boggling. Right. And, you know, there's, there's two issues that we can, we can drill down on a bit here. And, and the first is that connection between the two, i.e. police officers engaging and shooting individuals in these minority communities. The reality is, and it's a simple reality, and if you want to blame societal factors, income disparity, fine, have that discussion. But just like in the Chauvin case, in the George Floyd trial, there simply was and is no evidence of systemic or otherwise bias or racism. The fact is, is the police officers are in these communities because that is where the crime, the violent crime and the drug dealing and the other types of crimes, assaults, B&Es are taking place. The police officers didn't hunt out George Floyd. The store owner called a complaint because he was given a counterfeit whatever the currency was. I mean, the, the $20, the $20 bill. bill. And that's why the police responded. Now, did 
Mr. Chauvin use excessive force, et cetera, according to the guilty verdict, yes. Um, and so he's being punished for that, but it had nothing to do with systemic racism. Now, what do you hear though? You hear two things essentially. The first is, well, the police are in these communities and there's crime taking place because of systemic racism that blacks and, and other minorities in these communities have been discriminated against for decades and uh, they don't have educational opportunity that we even being told that, that uh, COVID-19 attacks them um, as a result of systemic racism at higher levels than in other communities. And when you point out that the income disparity, the educational disparities the social economic levels between those communities and more affluent or other communities, those kinds of issues are inherent in any society. Now, if you want to address those issues, you can, but that's not systemic racism. And this gets to the other point, the idea that every disparity, and this is their argument, if you, if you see that more black men are being sentenced um, to imprisonment than white men, the claim is it's systemic racism. But that's not the first answer. The first answer could very well be that the crimes they commit are more often more serious and they're taking place at a much higher rate given the population in the, in, in the community. But even if you could show that if you are able to equalize all the other variables, control them, and just study all white people being incarcerated for uh, assault or let's say f felony burglary versus blacks, and you find that blacks are being imprisoned at higher rates and for longer periods of time, that still doesn't necessarily mean that there's systemic racism going on. It could very well be a product of that particular community standards. It could very well be the difference between that state's penal laws and another state's penal laws. All of those factors have to be examined, but there's one salient point. And we talked about this in a previous podcast, every single society, every single community will always treat its minority citizens differently than the majority. That's part of human nature. Is it unfair? Is it sad? Is it even tragic? I would agree with all that, but it's true. We, if you look, for example, in the, the so-called, you know, the, 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 socialist um, Scandinavian countries. Up until the asylum convention was signed, these societies, Sweden, Norway, Denmark, had very little in-migration, very little immigration. And they were very homogenous societies. So you didn't have this problem. The moment the asylum convention was signed by all the nations that signed it that says when someone makes a uh, shows up on your border and is claiming asylum you have to go through a process before you can turn them away and you have to absorb them if they have a legitimate claim what happened you saw an enormous influx of muslim immigrants into this area and now all of these nations sweden denmark have enormous problems with discrimination against the Muslim communities. You see the same in France. You see the same in Germany with the, the Muslim Turkish immigrants. That's simply part of human nature. You're never going to change that. We, we talked about the fact that young children begin to discriminate against other children who are different before they're old enough to recognize what they're doing. And it's the same phenomenon when a deer or an antelope or a giraffe, a young animal, is able to distinguish and treat differently 
another giraffe, another antelope, another deer, and a lion. It is inherent to the beast, literally. So that is never going to change. Now, what you can do is you can have laws that give people equal opportunities, et cetera. And no one's going to argue that this country didn't have systemic racism at one point. Slavery is systemic racism. The Jim Crow laws is systemic racism. But the fact is, is this country has made more and deeper dramatic changes legally and societally than I would dare say any other country on the face of the planet. And by the way, if you go down to the African nations that have gained their independence now for decades, you will find the minority white communities there and minority tribal communities there, not only being discriminated against, but being slaughtered. So it's simply not the case that the United States has a deep systemic racism that marks it as something other than a problem that's always going to be inherent in human nature. You know, there's, there's two, um, regarding this matter, there are two articles written by our good friend, uh, Andy McCarthy. I want to cover a, a, couple, a couple of points that he makes. One was published in the in National Review. He writes the National Review and the other on the Hill. And Andy was for many, many, many years a, a federal prosecutor. Um, so he, he knows his stuff when it comes to, uh, to criminal trials. And, and certainly he's a, uh, he's, a terrific, uh, he's a terrific writer as well. And this one in the National Review, it's titled, what the, media didn't what the Media Didn't Tell You About the Chauvin Case, right? The one we're talking about with George Floyd. Now, remember, the, the reason why principally, you know, we're raising this here is this whole George Floyd narrative. Think about how much destruction that caused to our country and how the left is, is using the lies associated with that one case to push an agenda that is, that is going to be continued to cause huge damage. To, to this country. And I juxtapose that with the fact that, you know, you have the Facebook fact checkers, right? The independent fact checkers silencing our speech and wondering, you know, how much are these uh, independent fact checkers going in and silencing the speech of Black Lives Matter and these other groups that are basically race baiters, right? That's what they do. They, they use this wedge issue to, uh, to, to continue to divide people. But this is, this is uh, again, the article from uh, Andy McCarthy. He said, if you didn't watch, if you did not watch the Derek Chauvin trial, but only heard the inflammatory comments spewing out of the White House in the media Democrat complex, there are things about it you would never know. And you'd be apt to believe the claims that American law enforcement is systemically racist. I watched the trial day in and day out, so let me cut you in on a few basic facts. Not a shred of evidence was introduced at the trial that Derek Chauvin is a racist, none. There was nothing in the weeks of testimony that even hinted at such a thing. The prosecutors who aggressively urged the jury to convict Chauvin of murder never intimated that racism played any role in the crimes. They convincingly argued that he was a bad cop, not a racist cop. Let me just say, I mean, we're not saying that there aren't bad cops out there. There are bad cops out there who do bad things. And when they do bad things, guess what? We're going to prosecute them like they did with Chauvin. It's not systemic racism. If there was systemic racism, he would have gotten away with it. And, it would have been, and there would have been evidence of racism, but there was actually zero evidence. And he goes on to say, according to the prosecution's evidence, which the jury must be presumed to have credited, Floyd died because his lungs were constricted. To be very specific, Floyd was never placed in a chokehold. Remember that? Right? We got we to ban all these chokeholds that the police department used because of the, because of the George Floyd. It, it didn't happen. That Chauvin did not choke him is not merely a defense contention. It is the prosecution's evidence. Floyd's earway was never constricted by the placement of police hands or knees on his throat. That is what the evidence showed. Don't let the evidence get in the way. And here he says, the Biden administration, this is how he concludes, the Biden administration and congressional Democrats are using the Chauvin murder conviction as the premise for claiming that policing in America must be transformed by legislation and Justice Department monitoring because it smacks of white racism against black people. This transformation, we are told, must begin with such steps as an official government assumption that racism explains why blacks are arrested at a disproportionately high rate 
compared with their share of the overall population and a categorical ban on chokeholds. And yet these are the facts. George Floyd was arrested, not based on a police assumption, but in response to a credible citizen complaint that he committed a crime coupled with obvious evidence that he was high on drugs while operating a car. The police never choked him and there is no evidence that racism motivated the, the police to mistreat him. I mean, devastating. And again, think back to what happened all summer long and, and city streets and, and city buildings, entire communities burned to the ground. How many people injured in the, the mayhem and the mobs because of this lie? Let me, a couple more uh, in this, another article, which, uh, which uh, Andy published in The Hill called The Evolution of Defund the Police. Uh, he, he has a few statistics in here I want to highlight, but he goes through this whole thing about why, you know, this, this idea the left wants to defund the police, you know, remove, you know, funding for the, the police departments, particularly it's going to be in the inner cities and in the, uh, these communities that need it the most. Here's, here's uh, again from Andy's article. Despite the gaslighting media coverage and Democratic Party rhetoric, it remains a fact that police are not hunting down African-American men or anyone else for that matter. Indeed, the total number of fatal shootings by police in the U.S. is small, about 1,000 annually in a country of 330 million people, in which there are 60 million yearly interactions between police and civilians, 10 million arrests, 2 million incidents of the use or threatened use of force. And he goes on to say, at well over 7,000, the number of black homicide victims per year is very high compared to other democratic groups. The FBI says African-Americans accounted for about 56% of total US homicides in 2019. That's a lot, 56%. I think the population is roughly 13%. But here's the big but, only about 0.2% are unarmed victims of police shooting whereas 80 to 90% of black homicide victims are killed by black assailants. Those, those are facts. Those are facts. The fact of the matter is there isn't systemic racism that uh, Black Lives Matter keeps perpetuating and that the left wants to continue to use um, as a mantra to pound over our heads to make you know, anyone who's, you know, who's, who's not African-American to, to feel like you're res responsible for somebody's death. I mean, it's just, it's an absurdity. But again, going back to the main point, which brought us down this, this trail, was the fact that you know, Facebook, are they, are they censoring all this social media? Did they censor, you know, does, is Twitter censoring LeBron James when he was making his, his uh, you know, fiery you know, comments about police officers without know, knowing any of the facts? Let's go back and look at all the Twitter and Facebook posts from all these, you know, woke NBA players and, you know, pampered uh, wealthy athletes who, who just, they're, they're, it's based on a lie. There was no racism that played any part in George Floyd's death in Minneapolis. And we know that because we actually had a trial, right? And we had the prosecutors led by the attorney general, right? Who's the lead law enforcement officer of the state, Keith Ellison, a Democrat, a progressive, an African-American, right? Somebody who's, who, who, you know, obviously is behind this mantra of systemic racism, yet he had to admit there was zero evidence that race played any part. And this is after weeks of a criminal trial where such evidence would have been presented as motive and, and otherwise. And it just, it doesn't exist. So at the end of the day, Black Lives Matter, all these woke politicians, all these woke executives of the NBA, Major League Baseball, NFL, you know, all these, uh, the, the woke politicians, the, the, the woke uh, athletes, they owe the United States of America a huge apology because they were wrong and they were perpetuating lies that have continued to divide our country. You guys need to apologize. I doubt they'll do so, but they need to. You know, it's uh, Andy's article, uh, of course, is spot on. Um, and what we don't hear, of course, is the hue and cry from the black community. You have singular voices about the black on black murder rate because most of those 7,000 murder victims, black murder victims, are murdered by other blacks in those communities. And it's part of the drug war. 
right? The, the staking out of, of um, territories by the drug dealers, attacking innocent civilians, drive-by shootings and the like. So why is it that there is no hue and cry from the black community or the left or the progressives about that? What we know is that the poverty and the crime and the systemic destruction of the African-American family and community, the systemic destruction began with LBJ, Lyndon Johnson's War on Poverty, Great Society, and it has been continued by every single administration Democrat and Republican, of course, on steroids by the Democrats, and with Biden now, not even on steroids, it's on methamphetamine. I mean, it's just going nuts. Even though we know it doesn't work, you can throw money, you can throw money. We've created a cottage industry out of the, you know, the Jesse Jacksons and the, and the, that other... Um, Sharpton. Yeah. Criminal uh, Sharpton. Where they make huge sums of money, making the same complaint: we need more money for these communities, but throwing more money, and we threw enormous amounts in these communities, simply doesn't work. And all we've done is create a class of victims. And they're so good at creating that class and indoctrinating them in the public schools and even in the universities that they believe that they're going to get out of this cycle of poverty and crime by doing exactly the same thing they've done for 50, 60 years now that has not worked. There's not going to be a solution to this problem. I don't believe in my lifetime Primarily because, as we've said in the past, the progressives, the left, control all of the levers of power, education, and culture in this country. And they are so effective at, at indoctrinating young people, whether they're in those communities or the so-called intellectuals that either get out of those communities or, you know, the, the, the white students who... Um, are the biggest proponents of progressive policies in the, in the academic world or in the bureaucratic world or in the political world. Because they are so effective, and it's not a matter of, of, of a new narrative of being more effective than they are, they control all the levers. So unless someone comes up with a plan to take back those levers in some fashion, we're going to continue as in what we've called this non-kinetic civil war until such time as someone comes up with a solution to take back those levers of power and to make real change. You know, there was a, a politician who suggested great policies to make that change, and that was Jack Kemp. And, um, you know, the former football quarterback that became a, a real spokesperson for for um, solid conservative policies that would help these communities. He was the one who initiated the idea of these you know, empowerment zones. But of course, those empowerment zones, when they were tried, worked, but have been left to languish across many administrations. But those are the kind of policies that would make a difference. School choice, charter schools, those would make a difference. But the teachers union is absolutely opposed to it as one of the big loud mouths of the progressive movement. And it never happens. And so a, a, a young mother in those communities trying to raise her um, sons and daughters to get out of that community, to avoid the gangs, to avoid the drugs, has to send her children to the inner city schools where the gangs and the drugs and all the other problems exist, as opposed to sending them out of that community to a school where they have a chance to see that there's an alternative. Yeah. You know, like the, uh, 
Obamas didn't send their kids to the uh, to the D.C. <laughs> public schools, as it were. Right? They went to the prestigious uh, whatever schools that you know they could send their kids to that they wouldn't want school choice for others. I mean, it's just remarkable. You know, the, the um, Alan West. You remember him, the Congressman Alan West, African American, good, solid conservative. You know, he said right? all that the, the left wants to do is keep you know the the black community on the welfare plantation, right? And and. It, it's 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 remarkable, right? They create this fear and panic that they they make these communities feel this, you know, that, that they have to rely on the on the government, right? They have to if they if the government isn't giving them a welfare check, then they then they they're not going to be able to survive, right? Trump was making actually a lot of gains in that year, providing opportunities for the African American community, and he started to see more and more of them coming over to the over the conservative side. And so what the left have to do, boy, they had to paint him, President Trump with that white nationalist supremacist, you know, racist brush to, to scare other African-Americans away from voting for him. I, I wish I mean, if any, there's any African-Americans to listen to this, consider conservatism, consider the Republican Party. Remember, the Democrat Party was the Dixie, the Dixiecrats. The Democrat Party is the party of the Jim Crow laws. The Republican Party is the party of Abraham Lincoln. We're the party that actually freed the slaves. We're the party that actually put, you know, Clarence Thomas in the uh, in the Supreme Court. It's 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 frustrating how they uh, how the left continues to use fear, right? And they use the whole George Floyd narrative of systemic racism and everything else to continue to perpetuate this myth and to to continue to create this crisis so they can control people's lives. Because at the end of the day. What do they represent? They represent votes, votes for them. And what do votes for them represent? They represent power. And, you know, there's, they are subjugating the African-American community for power. That's the bottom line. And it's, and it's sad and it's tearing this country apart and it's destroying entire communities. It's just sad to watch. Rob, I don't, I don't want to keep beating this drum, but I'm going to keep beating this drum. <laughs> and I apologize in advance to all our listeners. I don't get frustrated over the fact that history doesn't actually matter, right? Who were the Dixiecrats and who were, you know, all that history, um, who were the racist in the South, Democrat. But that would suggest that history matters. It doesn't. It would also suggest the George Floyd and the lack of racism and Andy McCarthy's facts in his, in his wonderful article that would suggest that facts matter. At this stage in this- Well, according to Facebook, they do. They fact-checked us. <laughs> right. But of course, of course, that's exactly the, the demonstrable proof that facts don't matter. Exactly. They will, yep. they, will, they will censor people who are either stating either arguably true facts or judgments about facts, not facts themselves, but then they will allow the progressives and the left to lie- and to entertain all sorts of radical, stupid conspiracy theories. But the, the fact that facts don't matter and history doesn't matter is going to continue as long as we remain in this civil war. The battle is now not over facts. The battle is not over history. Because if one thinks that's the battle, one would have to first articulate some way that they are going to use those facts to regain the levers of power. And I would argue, first of all, you're not going to regain the levers of power. And you have, there's, there's no viable method to do that right now. It doesn't mean that someone smarter than I and you couldn't come up with that. And I know your position. Your position is, well, we can still use the power of the purse. We can boycott, we can schmoycott and do all this other stuff. But the reality is, is that they have such a monopoly globally, not just nationally, the big hype, the tech companies and, and, the, and the big wigs and the progressive movement in the business world that, yeah, we can, we can make a dent and we might move the needle a little bit in the same way that Ronald Reagan moved the needle and the same way Trump moved the needle, but it doesn't last because they have such a panoply and, and, and a all pervasive control over the levers of power in our society. It's, it's just going to take more than facts and history to get this thing 
turned around. Yeah, homeschool. Get your kids out of those pub, the public school system. That's one of the main things. Um, I, I want to. Oh, by the way, Rob, let me yes. interrupt you. I apologize. And I guarantee you that if if there were enough people homeschooling, and if the left saw their constituency home, they don't care that you homeschool, right? They don't care that I send my kids to a or sent them to a yeshiva where they learned only Jewish studies, and you know, and and were ensconced in that world, and they don't care that you've taught your kids at home and, and raised good Catholic young men and women, they don't care about us. But if we were to, if they were to see a movement among the African-American community, the Latino community to homeschooling, to private schools, I guarantee you they would outlaw it in a second. Yeah. Sad, sad, but, uh, sad, but likely true. You're right. That'd be the, but you know, one of the things interesting, um, and and I'm curious to see how this all unfolds over the next upcoming year, with COVID nineteen and all the teachers unions, you know, claiming that we got to, you know, shut the schools down and and basically doing it as kind of holding you know the school as a ransom to get you know more funding for their for them and you know for all these teachers, other programs right. they put in place had nothing to do with COVID nineteen. They just want to get more power. These uh, these unions. Well, guess what happened. A lot of these children went to private schools. A lot of them went to homeschooling. I know the homeschool program that uh, that we use. I think they said their numbers increased by like tenfold just over this past year. So you know they may be shooting themselves in the foot. So it'll be kind of curious to see how this all unfolds. So let's do a a total uh, change here and shift because uh, I want to talk about this uh, this case, the Supreme Court granted review this past Monday in a Second Amendment case. Very, very interesting. This is a, uh, so they decided on, uh, on April 26th, the Monday, this past Monday, uh, they granted review, which, which is in legal terms, they granted what's called a, a writ for certiorari. The U.S. Supreme Court is not typically a court of original jurisdiction, unless you have a state suing another state, like we saw in the election cases and elsewhere. But they are, they, the most of the cases that they take, they have discretion to take or not take. And you file what's called a writ of certiorari, and uh, the court can either grant it or not grant it. In this case, they, they granted this, uh, this petition to the court to hear this Second Amendment case. And just for, everybody, New York's, Rob, ahead. Rob, just, yeah. just for everybody, so the Second Amendment, of course, is the right to bear arms. So it's yes. a, that's the, the, the fundamental issue. Go ahead. I, I hope listeners to this podcast know what the Second Amendment addresses, but I do I too. But I'm hoping I'm hoping that people who are listening are listening to this podcast who don't know what the Second Amendment is, because the, the ones who do know we're just preaching to the choir. I exactly, want to preach yeah. to those people who aren't in the choir. Understood. So this is a case challenging New York's restrictive concealed carry um, licensing regime. So what this does, it it sets the stage for the Supreme Court to affirm. What most states already hold is true, that there's an individual right to self-defense outside of the home. And this, this case challenges New York's requirement that applicants demonstrate, quote unquote, proper cause to carry a firearm. New York regularly uses this requirement to deny applicants the right to carry a firearm outside of their home. Law, you know, as, as most supporters of the Second Amendment uh, believe that law-abiding citizens should not be required to prove they are in peril to receive the government's permission to, uh, to exercise their constitutionally protected right to carry. What's interesting, this will give the Supreme Court the opportunity to, to clarify precedent that it has uh, created surrounding the Second Amendment. It's been over a decade since the Supreme Court ruled that the Second Amendment protects an individual right to have a handgun in the home for self-defense. So that was the District of Columbia case versus Heller. And in 2010, the court also ruled that the Second Amendment is a fundamental right that applies to the states. And it did so in McDonald versus uh, the city of Chicago. You know, we just discussed before, you know, the second amendment is one of the, uh, the bill of rights, which is the first 10 amendments, to the U S constitution, the bill of rights as uh, originally drafted were restrictions on the power of the federal government. And um, it wasn't until the 14th amendment, which is one of the civil war amendments that was passed again after the civil war, which, which applies, you know, it has equal protection is one of the equal protection due process and applies to the states. The court created this doctrine called incorporation doctrine, where they incorporated much of the Bill of Rights, not all of them, but much of the Bill of Rights 
through the 14th Amendment to apply as against state government entities. Now, most states like Michigan, for example, have, have very robust uh, protections um, under for the right to bear arms. Obviously, it's not a Second Amendment right because it's not necessarily a Second Amendment uh, to their, you know, to the Constitution. For example, in Michigan uh, Constitution, it's Article One, Section Six, and it says, "quote Every person has a right to keep and bear arms for the defense of himself and the state." End quote. Now, that's a very robust protection, right? Because there's debate over, you know, the the language about militia and the Second Amendment and and whether it should be a, uh, an individual right or whether it's some sort of collective right that belongs to these militias that the states created. Well, the Supreme Court in, the, uh, in that Heller case made clear that the, that the Second Amendment right is an individual right. And, uh, and in that case, they upheld the right of an individual to have a firearm for the protection of his home. This is, this is kind of extending that about whether or not it extends to a Second Amendment right for just the, you know, the protection for self-defense, maybe not outside the home. You know, like I have a concealed carry permit here in Michigan. I carry quite frequently, you know, outside the home for protection of myself and others um, as necessary. Um, and so it's, it's, uh, that's going to be an interesting, uh, interesting case uh, when the, the, you know, the court agreed to take it up. Now, here's a, a couple of things on, this, on the Second Amendment, right? Because remember, the Bill of Rights, as we've discussed previously and we'll continue to discuss, are breaks on the power of government, right? They're not a conferring by the government of rights upon us. They are a recognition of the fact that we have certain inalienable rights that the government has no power to restrict. And we put in the, the framers, there was a big debate of whether they should actually articulate those or not articulate them and as a Bill of Rights and amendments um, because they didn't, if they, you know, the argument was, look, if we articulate only a certain few, then the question will be, okay, those that aren't articulated, do we no longer possess those? And so they, it, obviously at the end of the day, um, they decided to have a, a Bill of Rights, the, the first 10 amendments, the second amendment being the, you know, the, the next one. So when you think about the importance of the rights and the hierarchy that they put, the first amendment, as I've often described it as, you know, it's the right to freedom of speech, the right to free exercise of religion, the right to a free press, the right um, to seek redress of grievances with the, with the government. Those are all encompassed in the first amendment. Essentially, the first amendment is like, is, is I'd like to describe it, it's a peaceful way to revolt against the tyranny of government. It's a peaceful way to express your opposition to the government's imposition upon your, your liberties. Then we have the Second Amendment, right? And when you think about, you know, what, the, what the, our founders, when, when you, you know, the, the beginning of the Civil War, the famous, you know, shot heard around the world was at Lexington and Concord, right? And, and what were the Redcoats doing? The Redcoats were out to collect the weapons of the, uh, of the colonialists, right? The Minutemen. They had caches of weapons because they were preparing just in case they had to, you know, actually take arms against the tyranny of the British government. And that's what started the Civil Wars. They were going to go get their weapons. And so the, the founding fathers put in a Second Amendment that gives us the right, the right to, to protect ourselves against government tyranny. That's really what it's about. Right. As much as, you know, I'm a deer hunter and I love deer hunting and I love having a be able to have a firearm to go hunt deer. Right. I, I like to have a firearm and, you know, in the house to protect myself. Um, you know, against a, a criminal that might break in, right? Remember uh, Biden famously, you know, saying that, you know, get a shotgun, right? That's the second one. You can go outside and pump the shotgun, shoot it in the air and scare the, uh, and scare the burglar off. Those are, you know, certainly I think I have an inalienable right and fundamental right of self-defense and firearms give me the ability to, to protect that right. But at the end of the day, the, those amendments were to protect us against the tyranny of government, Right. So it's it's really, you know, and obviously to say that is, is pretty, probably pretty controversial. But when you look at the history, it's you know, we do have um, con the, the Bill of Rights were to prevent the uh, the tyranny of government. And so it confers on us a right. Quite frankly, too, I, you know, my uh, uh, you know, I, I have discussion with my wife, too, is like, you know, we think about a, a uh, you know, a foreign nation ever like invading our land. Right. It's almost you know, strange to even think of that concept. Um, but uh, if they did, you know, they would run into a lot of good old boys who are pretty well armed. It's not going to be that easy to just kind of roll in through our cities. Um, so, I mean, that's, that's part of it as well, right? And I, I really do, I like the way that, again, the Michigan Constitution frames it. Every person has a right to keep and bear arms for the defense of himself and the state, right? To protect the home and hearth and to protect the state against all enemies. And uh, so you do have this right. And it's going to be interesting, you know, the Supreme Court will take it up. My, I mean, uh, 
reading the tea leaves and knowing the makeup of the court, and hopefully it doesn't change between now and then with the uh, threats to, to pack the court, um, hopefully they will continue to you know, emphasize the fact that the Second Amendment right is an individual right. Um, it includes the right of self-defense in the home and outside the home, and, and will strike down this uh, ridiculous uh, restriction on the right to bear arms by, the, uh, by, by New York. David, you know, the way you framed it is is really um, sharp. Uh, it's it has a, a clear focus, and we've talked about it here. So taking a step back on this issue, so the First Amendment, as you put it, is the fundamental liberty to protect yourself against government intrusion through speech, a peaceful protest, right? And, and that's really what the First Amendment is across the board. And that's what we saw was attacked with the COVID-19 protocols, right? Shutting down of public demonstrations, claiming that, you know, that they were going to spread COVID when it was clear that they weren't. Until, of course, the message, the George Floyd protest was, and the Black Lives Matter was what the left wanted, then all of a sudden they didn't want to enforce their executive orders. But that is the peaceful approach. And then when does one elide or slide into the Second Amendment, the non, the kinetic civil war, when government effectively shuts down the First Amendment? And that's what we see taking place it used to be incrementally, but it is accelerating. So for example, we see the Biden administration and we're both about ready to pull triggers on our own respective complaints in this area. And we'll metaphor pulling the trigger. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> we, we can filing, filing a lawsuit, not, right. not actually I, I, uh, I could end up not being firing like, a weapon. Yeah, I could be, be like Giuliani. I could have FBI agents, you know, raiding my yeah. home. The They're going to be knocking on your door in about five minutes. Right. <laughs> Although this hasn't gone live yet, but once it does, five minutes it, after it, it goes does. live. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, but um, we see that the Biden administration trying to shut down speech through the big tech monopoly powers. Um, we saw it with the COVID restrictions. We see it in another area. There has been for about now a decade, a movement by the um, Sharia and the jihadist, meaning the Islamist types, when they would argue that, you know, free speech is fine, except when you talk about Islam. So if you were to insult their prophet Muhammad or criticize their religion, which of course takes place across universities against Judaism and Christianity, biblical criticism and the like, Go to any sociology class and just listen to the professor rail against organized religion and the belief in God, right? Or go to a science class for that matter, and you'll hear the same thing. The Islamist, the Sharia adherent crowd, the jihadist crowd argued that your culture just doesn't accept our sensitivity. And they literally made efforts through the UN and through symposiums to try to enlist the United States and the Western world into the view that you should restrict free speech within the First Amendment to speech that doesn't insult religion, and specifically our religion, Islam. That was just another effort. It's kind of um, waned in the latter years because there's so many other things on the agenda for the left. But the fact is, is that those are the kinds of methods that the left will use to finally shut down free speech in a serious and effective way. And when that happens, the only other response, and again, we don't advocate it, we pray that it never should occur and no one should ever construe anything we say to the contrary. But the reality is if you shut down free speech, you will end up with a kinetic civil war with violence. It happens in every single society. For example, Putin can get away with it for a while and you can murder you know, your opposition and journalists, but eventually you know, you're gonna end up having to respond 
to widespread protest. We've seen it in China with Tiananmen Square. Now, the Chinese government is extremely efficient at shutting down protests. And one way they did it, of course, was to open up their economy to micro-capitalism and to allow people to make money um, hands over fist and to create a, a middle class because they understood that if they kept shutting down their society, even economically, they were going to have mass violence on their hands. So that's how they've dealt with it. But it won't last forever. China isn't going to last forever any more than Russia, any more than the United States is going to last forever. And especially as governments move into this area of shutting down speech and ultimately of thought. Yeah, and, and we see that, you know, they, you hear claims of hate speech. There's no such thing as hate speech. It's not, it's not like a category of speech that's carved out from the First Amendment, like obscenity or defamation or any of those historic, uh, historic examples. But, you, you know, you hear it all the time. You say something that, um, you know, that somebody doesn't like, and it's usually, you know, then it's, it's labeled hate speech, and they try to marginalize you and, uh, and shut you down. Now, one thing I want to, I want to make, make a point here, because it's, I think it's an important one as well, and it's kind of the... Uh, so, sort of the conflict with um, how I'm explaining the view of the Second Amendment and and the reality under under constitutional law. Right, we know that fundamental rights are protected the most, but but they're not absolute in every circumstance. Right, you if the if the government infringes upon a fundamental right, it has to satisfy strict scrutiny under extant uh, constitutional jurisprudence. And again, you know, as lawyers, I want to kind of explain a little bit of this because this is really our you know, our bread and butter, right? And so to, to satisfy strict scrutiny, the government must have a compelling interest for imposing the restriction, and it must be narrowly tailored for that restriction. And you hear terms sometimes, it must be the least restrictive means uh, of doing so. Strict scrutiny is, is oftentimes fatal, in fact, for the government, meaning that if you get to the point where they have to apply strict scrutiny, the government's likely going to lose, but not always, right? So even though you, you, know, you have a fundamental right to freedom of speech, there are times when the government can place restrictions on that. We, you know, there's time, place, manner restrictions, which don't even trigger strict scrutiny. Um, there's, uh, you know, there's, there's forum issues. Like you don't have a fundamental right to free speech in a courthouse. Like I can't just go in and disrupt a trial that's going on in a federal courthouse and start protesting with signs. You just can't do that. I mean, there's, there's limitations. Similarly, and I think it's, it's logical too, even on the second amendment, you know, would the government, for example, have a compelling interest to prevent somebody from acquiring a nuclear weapon? I think they would, right, for, for many reasons, for the protection of society and the community and so forth, or for having a tank, right? And so where does that level come all the way down to? Now, I personally think, like, for example, they call them, a, you know, assault weapons. What's an assault weapon? Try to define that for me, right? They typically, they don't like the AR-15 platform, which is a very versatile platform, very common. Um, it's used by sportsmen and shooters and because it's, it's just well, a well-designed platform. Do I think the Second Amendment protects the right to have AR-15s and those platforms? Absolutely, I think it does. Um, now, you know, whether it protects the right to have, you know, full automatic weapons or grenade launchers and those sorts of things, you know, you're getting more towards the government having a compelling interest. So, um, you know, I'm not, I, I think the Second Amendment ultimately, again, is a, a right to be able to defend yourself against the tyranny of government. But under extant constitutional jurisprudence, I think there's, you know, there's going to be some limitations that, that where the government may have a compelling interest, like I said, nuclear weapons, you know, can you create your own bio, you know, warfare bio weapons in your, in your home laboratory? No, I mean, those are, those are things that I think for the, the larger protection of the, um, of the community. So where that, you know, where that line goes from uh, being able to defend yourself against the tyranny of government. Obviously, our government has a military that has, you know, jets and bombs and everything else. Um, where that, you know, where that continues to shift is, I mean, that's uh, uh, still to be seen. But uh, thankfully, you know, right now they recognize, the Supreme Court recognizes, and, and hopefully it will continue to affirm that the uh, Second Amendment is a fundamental right, and it's a personal liberty interest, just like the right to freedom of speech. You possess that right as I possess that right as citizens of the, uh, of the United States. Rob, let me boil this down for our non-lawyers so that it, it's, it's, it's rational and understandable. So we have this constitution that has the Bill of Rights. So let's just deal with the first and second in large. And that is the first amendment says in part, you have freedom of speech. The government can't um, limit your speech. And that's all it says. 
Now, there was a history behind that First Amendment. And so the Supreme Court and the lower federal courts were asked to weigh in on precisely the question that Rob points out. Well, it can't mean it literally that the federal government can't um, restrict some speech. So for example, can the government punish you for going into court and putting your hand on the Bible and swearing or affirming to tell the truth and then just lie? No, because that's a compelling governmental interest that when people are in court, they tell the truth. And the Supreme Court held and the lower courts below them confirmed in their own ways, the fact that there are very limited circumstances where the government can impose these restrictions. Perjury in court, um, uh, consumer fraud. We don't allow people to just defraud people in the consumer market. Defamation, we don't allow people to speak um, falsely about other people that, that puts them in a false light and that causes them harm. So the First Amendment is modified by the Supreme Court. Now, how? How, how does the Supreme Court know how to modify that? Well, I'm going to just boil this down to two camps, effectively. It's not, but there's two big camps. One camp, the progressive camp, says the Supreme Court should simply rewrite the law at will, at any time, in any age, to kind of make the First Amendment what we want it to, to be. So if the majority of the progressives decide that First Amendment speech should not be protected if it's saying bad things about vaccines, well, their view is the Supreme Court should create another exception to the First Amendment, even though it's historically has no validity. The other school of thought, which is mostly held by conservative legal thinkers like Rob and myself, Justice, former Justice uh, uh, Scalia, um, Justice Thomas, and that is the originalist view. How do you know how to limit the First Amendment? you know by looking at what kinds of restrictions the founders, the framers of the Constitution had in mind at that time. And that guides the court so they're not just making up a new Constitution, a new Bill of Rights and amending it willy-nilly. The same is true of the Second Amendment. The originalist view would say, what kinds of weapons, what kinds of circumstances did the framers have in mind when they created that right? Clearly, they didn't have in mind the ability of, the, of an individual to um, arm himself with you know, tanks and, and the kinds of weapons, battleships or whatever they may be in our day and age, nuclear weapons and bio. They created, they had a specific kind of, of protection against tyranny and against invasion in mind. And those are the kinds of of originalist foundations so that it has some kind of objective reality. Now, of course, circumstances changed. There were no M60 tanks at the founding. There were no bio, you know, logical weapons at the time. But one can take the originalist view and circumstances and context and apply it as best as can be expected to our day and age. So, those are the differences. And that's when Rob speaks about a compelling state interest. They're not just, at least the Supreme Court shouldn't be in the business of just creating these things out of whole cloth. They have to relate historically to what the framers had in mind. These were brilliant political minds. They might've had other shortcomings, but as political thinkers, they were brilliant men. All right. Well, we, uh, we're reaching that magic time, David, for the, uh, uh, the end of the podcast for today. Uh, thank you all who've, uh, who've joined us and joined our discussion. And we, again, we continue to thank you for uh, any feedback that you can uh, provide at any one of the platforms. You can watch the video cast on our Rumble channel, our YouTube channel. You can listen to the podcasts um, on, uh, on Spotify and Stitcher and uh, on our RSS feed. Um, so there's different ways for you to be able to listen to all of these. 
And we, uh, you know, again, thank all of you for, for joining us. We'd ask you to, uh, uh, if you like these podcasts, you know, please spread the word. Uh, we're trying to grow, um, grow our audience so we can grow, you know, grow our influence. I mean, that's what, you know, we want to, we want to influence people's thoughts and understanding of these, uh, of these important issues that we've, uh, that we've been discussing. So again, thank all of you for, uh, for joining us. And as always, may God bless you and may he continue to bless America. Amen. Thank you.